is understanding um, why it might matter that we, that we start there. Okay, so to get there, let's back up and take a little bit wider context. Um, in Luke, Luke's gospel, in chapter 4, Luke is establishing really the front end of Jesus' ministry. Um, and he gives us this moment where immediately following the Jesus' temptation, uh, Jesus actually goes back into Nazareth, the town where he grew up. And Luke tells us about a synagogue service that Jesus went into. Uh, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah on this particular occasion. Um, and the way Luke gives us this story, it becomes apparent that what Luke is saying to us is that here is how Jesus uh, summarized, encapsulated, and sort of, um, here's Jesus' like mission statement, his own self-understanding of his mission, right? So let, let's read it. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, <clears throat> as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now again, this is Luke's way of telling us the concentrated core of Jesus' own mandate and mission, and Jesus is picking it up from Isaiah. Um, and I want you to notice a couple of phrases that are embedded in this, let's call it a mission statement of, of Jesus. Notice embed the, these phrases, liberty to the captives, letting the oppressed go free. And of course, Jesus is not making this up on the fly. He's getting this from Isaiah. We have it in Isaiah chapter 61. And when you go back to the Isaiah context, it becomes clear that Isaiah is speaking from um, a, 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 the, a vision. This is Isaiah's presentation of an idea that's actually older than, than Isaiah's time. It doesn't actually originate even with, with Isaiah. It becomes clear that Isaiah's talking about the year of Jubilee. Um, and this was a program that was given, uh, well, by God to the people of Israel through Moses. And, and the description of the year of Jubilee is found in Leviticus chapter 25. And I, I want to read it here in its full, like, protocol, right? So here it is. Uh, this is Leviticus 25. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. All right, we got the math. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the 10th day of the seventh month, that is the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land. Verse 10. And you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty Throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Now you can hear the tones of Isaiah and then by Jesus in that. Um, it shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap 
the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. If you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. That is between the time of the transaction until the jubilee. If the years are more, you shall increase the price. If the years are fewer, you shall diminish the price. For it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. You shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Interesting. I want you to notice again verse 10 there. That's the part about proclaiming liberty to all the inhabitants. This is liberty to the captives. This is letting the oppressed go free, as expressed by Isaiah and then Jesus. So that's what Isaiah was talking about his time years later. And again, what Jesus picked up on in his time, again, years later, clear to the first century. This is what Jesus was speaking of in his in invoking his own self-understanding. So clearly, Jesus, Isaiah and Jesus are both invoking, let's say, the program of Jubilee. Now, question. What does the Jubilee release of captives have to do with debt forgiveness? It's a very good question. And here's the thing. In both Isaiah's day and certainly in Jesus' day, most of those who were slaves were slaves because of debt. They came upon difficult economic hardship, let's say, uh, maybe because of a famine, for instance, uh, and eventually things become dire enough that they had to sell themselves into slavery in the effort to survive. Or maybe they pledged themselves as collateral for a loan and then Failure to repay the loan would result in slavery, different route to the same place. The end result in each instance is slavery. And so when Moses gives the Jubilee program, it includes everybody going back to their own family land. Going back to the family land from where? Well, from indentured servant, servitude uh, 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 as a form of debt repayment. That's where from. Now, Jubilee back to your own land. So here's the deal. The year of Jubilee protocol is for debts to be canceled and for those who are in debt slavery to be released. That's what's embedded in this Jubilee protocol. That's the year of Jubilee. And that's how Jesus framed his entire mission and ministry. And besides that, isn't it always true that there's a direct linkage between debt and slavery. <laughs> um, and this same thing is true with the reversal. There's a direct linkage between the forgiveness of debt and the liberation from slavery. When, when Jesus identifies his ministry as inaugurating the year of Jubilee, he's addressing both social issues, debt and slavery, debt forgiveness and release from debt slavery. Um, the two are actually intimately linked, virtually one and the same. Indebtedness is always a form of slavery, whether the hard version 
or the more modern, softer version that we all know too well. Um, and so debt forgiveness, then, is a form of emancipation from slavery, whether it's emancipation from the hard form of slavery or emancipation from the softer form. And again, from another angle of view, the, the inner logic of the instruction for the year of Jubilee. It flows directly from the character of God, right? We remember the story. God is a liberator. He shows up delivering Israel from slavery. And so with this Jubilee protocol, God is actually implanting into the society of Israel a new normal, right into the heart of who they are as a people. And it is designed to ensure that slavery never again takes root in their society. How so? By embedding debt forgiveness into their calendar. Every 50 years, all debts are forgiven, and everybody goes back to their own property, that is the family land. Slaves go free, and everybody goes back to their family land. And so here, we are now with Jesus and his prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Listen, everybody. This line in the Lord's Prayer is another instance of Jesus invoking the year of Jubilee protocol. But now we begin to see that Jesus' vision is that the Jubilee protocol now becomes permanent and perpetual. That now the year of Jubilee has been transformed into the age of Jubilee. This is what Jesus is announcing. Also, another difference is that now the year of Jubilee has spilled over and beyond the banks of Israel and has become a universal Jubilee for all people, for all tribes. And so, even if we begin by taking debts and debtors literally here, this is still not the most radical thing that Jesus has ever said. He announced his ministry by saying something completely uh, disruptive of the norm. That is the year of Jubilee. He had already framed his ministry in terms of bringing about this perpetual and universal worldwide Jubilee protocol. Everybody, that's huge. That's enormous. That's, I'm just telling you between, I, I can't fathom that. Um, but what we can say from what we have is that Jesus wants Jubilee to become the new normal for the world. That's what's going on here in this prayer. Here's, here's how it works. God is the householder of the world house, right? Um, our father in heaven. Um, and one quality of God's household, Jesus is saying, one quality of God's household is that there are no slaves in it. And that none of God's sons and daughters are holding debts over against one another. That's what's going on. And so when the Jesus people recite this line together again and again and again throughout the ages and throughout the seasons of our lives and so on, we are actually announcing a vision in line with the vision of Jesus that forgiveness and liberation would overtake and replace debt and enslavement as the world's new normal. This is extraordinary to think about. 
Um, and, and let me just say, you know, when, when Moses, you know, when, when God gave this Jubilee protocol through Moses, I mean, for sure, that's, that's you know, you try to dial back. That, that, I mean, that's a radical, that's a radical idea. Um, and yet, we have to say that, you know, at least sociologically speaking, Moses is building a society more or less from a clean slate. So, so Israel is fresh, right? They're fresh out of Egyptian captivity and their, their, their future, their society, their way of functioning together. It's pretty much a, a, a clean slate. There's not a whole lot of pre-existing social systems and so on to, to, for this Jubilee idea to rub up against. Um, so when Moses says, hey, gang, here's how we're going to do this, it's like, okay, that's how we're going to do it 50 years from now. We'll do, you know, whatever. Um, but in Jesus' case now, fast forwarding from Moses' day to first century Palestine, under the boot of the Roman Empire, uh, yes, Jesus is announcing the Jubilee Protocol inherited from Moses, but the context is very, very different. At this point, when Jesus announces this Jubilee Protocol, think about it. Think about how that would have sounded to a group of peasants, Jesus spent most of his ministry around peasants, um, who were either indentured debt slaves already or perhaps right on the verge of debt slavery. Think about how this would sound to them. It had to be like the, the best news they had ever heard. I mean, how quickly can I get on board with a vision like that? Like instantly, that's the answer. And so the, the point here is that you can think of it like in architectural terms, right? Like Moses was building a society on a fresh, clean foundation. But Jesus, when he announces the very same protocol, uh, for Jesus to announce it, this is, this is first of all, we got to tear down the existing house of horrors that, it, you know, that, that is this current society. And then we can build back something healing and something beautiful. So same protocol, but a very different context. It is bold. It is stunning for Jesus to invoke this protocol in that time, in that place. So again, put it all together, the prayer that is. Um, well, not all of it, but just, just kind of summarize. Father of the world house, your kingdom come, your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Then we move in to a couple of specifics. Enough food for everyone in the world house and no one in the world house burdened with debt. <laughs> Man, why don't you give us something big, you know? It's unreal. Um, but beautiful, right? I mean, beautiful. And so the next question is, how does Jesus think that we get from here to there. From here, that being debt in various forms of enslavement to debt to a place of no one being burdened by debt. Like, right? Like, how does Jesus think we get there? Is it through the application of wise money management strategies? <laughs> and we love Dave Ramsey and we appreciate that. But no, that's not what Jesus prescribes in this, in this vision announcement. Instead, Jesus announces 
that we achieve a new normal of no one being burdened by debt through the means of, here it is, forgiveness. Through the means of forgiveness. That beautiful but elusive phenomenon that that phenomenon that disrupts the painful normal of this world with something heavenly. Forgiveness. That's how Jesus prescribes. We get from here to there. Now, I need to be kind of, um, I don't know, candid. Um, this is, I totally acknowledge, this is, this is out there stuff. This is radical. I'll just be honest. This is unworkable. This is impractical. So much so, everybody, again, just to be candid, uh, we've ignored Jesus on this one. <laughs> I think we can all agree. I mean, in general, collectively speaking, essentially, we've concluded that Jesus got it wrong. That if, if he meant actual debt forgiveness here, we've just concluded that he missed it. Why? Because we have gone, we collectively, I'm talking generations of Jesus followers, we have continued to practice debt in various harder and softer forms of debt enslavement. We've essentially said, you know, Jesus, if, if you really meant it that way, you just missed it because for us to actually start forgiving actual debts, that is, that is just to leave way too much opportunity on the table, right? Like we, we just can't do that. And so we've, we have essentially, not essentially, we have ignored what he actually said and we've insisted that he meant something symbolic. Um, what he really meant was sins. And by the way, just to kind of give the rest of the story as Paul Harvey would say. Uh, we, that is we, the Jesus people, we're not alone in the act of selectively ignoring the direct instruction of our sacred teacher. You might be interested to know that scholars agree that there's actually no evidence that Israel ever practiced the year of Jubilee as prescribed by Moses in Leviticus 25. Isn't that kind of sad? Moses laid it all out. This radically beautiful, healing and helpful protocol, pattern that could have been, been embedded into their calendars, into their society for, for centuries, millennia. Um, but they never did it. Um, for me, it's kind of sad to imagine how the lives of countless numbers of people would have been favorably impacted by the year of Jubilee had they put it into practice. Think, think of how many children grew up in slavery because they ignored God's law on this one, because they ignored God's heart on this one. Think of how many families permanently lost their family's legacy <clears throat> Because one year of famine brought them into economic hardship 
Things unraveled from there, and they eventually lost the family land and went into indentured servitude or some form of more or less permanent debt slavery. It's just sad to think about when you view all of that heartbreak in juxtaposition against what God actually wanted for human society and what God laid out for them, like on a silver platter <laughs> through Moses. And, and all of that makes me wonder, what are we missing out on right now because we continue to ignore Jesus on this one? How much pain and heartbreak are we creating and, well, callously accepting because we're actually ignoring Jesus on this one when we insist on what he had to have meant was something purely symbolic? And the answer is a lot. We're missing out on a lot and we're tolerating a lot of pain and heartbreak. And so, as I said earlier, I want to try to take a stab at answering why, why does this matter? Why does it matter that we begin with a literal understanding of this line in the Lord's Prayer? You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, there are some people who might pride themselves on taking the Bible uh, literally by you know, embracing a literal approach to interpreting the Bible. But here, those very same people would insist on a symbolic interpretation, you know, <laughs> and say, you know, all those crazy liberals, you know, they just want to say the Bible should be taken symbolically, but we know the truth. The Bible has to be read literally, right? So, so like, oh, okay, so Mr. Bible man, so that means you believe that all the world's debt should be instantly forgiven right now then. Well, no, that, that was probably symbolic, <laughs> right? Like, don't get radical on me. Um, so, so let me just try to take a stab at answering this. Why, why might it matter that we begin with a literal understanding of this line, that debt means actual debt? And there are two reasons that I want to propose. I think, first of all, this matters because it reconnects us with the deep, revolutionary heart of Jesus. Listen, let me just say plain and simple. Jesus came to change the world. He came to change this world, really. He came to upend everything that is unjust and heartbreaking about this world system. Jesus came to really change the world. That's what his ministry was about. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. That's what the Lord's Prayer is all about. It pivots on the line, uh, as in heaven, so on earth, or, or on earth as in heaven. That's what got Jesus killed. Always remember that. You don't get killed for telling people you discovered a way they can go to heaven when they die. That doesn't bother the powers not one single bit. When the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying something and they knew it. They were saying something deeply political and deeply subversive to the way things are. And listen, Jesus is still Lord. He's Lord right here and right now. Jesus never should have been demoted to the Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of the world here and now. He's not Lord elect to be installed someday at some future point as Lord. He is Lord here and now. And the Lord thinks that it should be normal for people to forgive all forms of debt so that it becomes normal for people to be liberated from all forms 
of burdensome debt. So let's try, let's at least try to hold on to that truly revolutionary and transformational spirit and vision of Jesus. So that's reason number one why it matters that we begin with taking it how he gave it to us. Secondly, I just want to say, I think this perspective matters because the practice of forgiveness can too easily cheapen into kind of a superficial, sentimental act of moral obligation, right? Like, it becomes almost like this moral performance, right? Like, I'm a, I want to be a good person, and, you know, good people should always forgive, and so, and so I want to do that. And so too often, when it's, like, surface deep, forgiveness loses its actual transformational impact. And so I think by reconnecting uh, forgiveness with something as tangible, as basic as debt... Even after, from beginning at that point, even after we abstract, even if we begin with, with, a, with a tangible, real, practical understanding, debt means debt, we begin there. And then even after we abstract that to various layers of symbolic practice and meaning, still having started with that real nitty-gritty, real-world essential meaning, in that context now, the act of forgiveness carries, I think, more likely, to carry its real transformational result. And that is, in each instance of forgiveness, real forgiveness, there is a, uh, uh, a different, like things are different. After real forgiveness, there's a change, namely from bondage to freedom, right? So like when a real debt is forgiven, the result of that forgiveness, that's real. That's a real result. Like I was burdened, I was in bondage to that debt, and now I'm free. So, so now, if we have this rooted understanding of debt, Jesus is casting this vision to forgive debt. So now, when we begin there and abstract to various forms and even symbolic abstracted meanings of debt we can carry forward that real transformational juice to what forgiveness is. So that, for instance, when I forgive a wrong committed against me, it's not this superficial, sentimental, mouthing words, right, out of religious obligation. No, my heart is to carry forward the revolutionary spirit of Jesus, and I want to transform my world to the extent that I'm able from a place where there's burdens to a place where there's freedom. And so now forgiveness, even when it's practiced in more abstracted ways, it carries forward that revolutionary healing impact. So there is an actual result. It's not just a sentimental religious performance. It is carrying forward the revolutionary heart of Jesus. I think that matters. So, where do I start? <laughs> um, let's just acknowledge this is a seemingly, I'll qualify, uh, seemingly impossible dream to dream. A world where no one is burdened by debt. A world of actual economic compassion and justice. 
it just seems like it's too big of a hope to hope, you know? So where do I, where do I start? It's an honest question, and I'm going to do the best I can to answer. It'll be incomplete. Um, and I want to start by saying you start where you can. Um, does someone owe you money? Consider forgiving that debt. Um, does someone owe you a favor? Right? Like, have you maybe performed an act of kindness or an act of service for some person, and now, like, in the back of your mind, you may never say it out loud, but in the back of your mind, and maybe only you can acknowledge this, but in the back of your mind, you know, they owe me. Right? So I, I performed a favor. They, they owe me a kindness in return. Well, consider forgiving that debt. Um, has someone hurt you, offended you, failed to meet your expectations so that now you feel like they owe you an apology or they owe some form of restitution or they owe you some kind of new performance that does meet with your expectations or however that might play out? Well, consider forgiving that debt. Just forgive it. Just wipe the slate clean like for real. So you start where you can. Now, I also want to say, some of you are going to hear that and you're going to go, okay, yeah, that's good, but, but I'm feeling more, man. I'm feeling more. So, you, so there, there's going to be individual differences here. And some of you will hear this and something will just kind of like start a fire on the inside of you. And you'll, you'll see this on, on a larger, broader, systemic scale. And, and you'll have the audacity to at least try to go about bigger expressions of this. Um, and to that, I just want to say more power to you. Um, we're, we're happy. We're happy for that. We, we need you in the world working on the large scale. Now, I have to say, this is just kind of me riffing here, but... Um, in order for us to really, I think, make a direct application from Jesus' first century year of Jubilee to modern, I'll just confine this to modern American society, you, you champions, um, I would suggest that you would need to sift through the difference between hardship debt and elective debt. Because <laughs> a lot of what we have in our culture is elective, is elective debt. doesn't mean it's not burdensome, and it is. But, but I think to make that direct path connection from first century Palestine, your Jubilee, we would, need to, we would need to try as best we can to focus upon hardship debt. That is debt that our uh, society uh, is encumbered by because of hardship. I'll just give you one quick example, right? Like you think about medical debt, right? Like someone... Um, in our culture today, someone could fall ill or experience an injury and seek the medical care that they deserve and potentially spend the rest of their lives uh, burdened by debt, even bankrupt. Um, that's just wrong. That is not the vision of Jesus. So, so there, there you go. That's my attempt to answer the question, where, where do I start? Um, now, one last thing we got to do before we're done um, and I just need to address this because I know that for some it, it's a question. Um, this line in the Lord's Prayer, 
and this, this relates to when we, when we take this line as, as a first order um, dealing with sin. Um, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you take that to mean sin, and, I, and I, on, on one level it, it certainly does. Um, it sounds kind of conditional, right? It, it makes it sound like some kind of trade or some kind of bargain, right? Like, like okay, God, we're saying, we're asking for your forgiveness and we're promising that we're going to forgive others or practice ongoing forgiveness. So it, so it sounds like kind of a trade, sounds like kind of a bargain. It sounds kind of, kind of conditional, like, like forgiveness of sin as a condition, uh, conditioned by our forgiving others. And in fact... This actually becomes explicit in a follow-up tagline added just after the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, this is verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, now... We, we got to deal with this head on, everybody. Um, so I'll start with a question. Is God's forgiveness of us ever conditional? Or is God's forgiveness of us always unconditional? That is, without condition. A further question. Does Jesus believe that God's forgiveness of us is ever conditional? Or does Jesus believe that forgiveness is sometimes conditional and sometimes not? I think these are, you know, important questions to ask before we're done today. Um, and so first, I want to be straight up with you. I believe that God's love and God's forgiveness of us is always unconditional. Um, and so do you, by the way. Think about it. If somebody walked up to you cold and said, uh, hey, if you don't do such and such, then God won't forgive you. I know how you'd respond to that statement. You, 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 you would respond by giving them a strong dose of good, solid reformation theology, right? Like, oh, no, honey, Christianity is not about what we do. It's about what God has done, Right? Uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We are saved by grace through faith alone, right? You would give them, you would channel Martin Luther in that moment, and you would give them a good dose of the doctrine of justification by faith, even if you didn't use those words. We are saved not by works, but by grace. You would just go on and on about that. And so, yes, you and I both believe that God's love and God's forgiveness are unconditional. You can count on that. And also, get this, Jesus believes that God's forgiveness is unconditional. Jesus teaches it again and again, God's unconditional forgiveness. Jesus embodies God's unconditional forgiveness again and again. Jesus tells stories, parables, about God's unconditional forgiveness. I'm thinking of the story of the prodigal son. 
right? Like you remember the story, the father has two sons. One son asks for his inheritance uh, early, and the father grants the son the inheritance. The son goes off and he squanders the inheritance. Long story short, ends up working for apparently a pagan farmer because the son is taking care of pigs, which is, you know, really, really the, the lowest of the low for a, young, a Jewish young man. And then, as Jesus tells the story, the son comes to his senses and he says, I know what, I'll go back to my father's household as a servant because my father's servants live better than I'm living right now. And so he prepares his speech to that effect and he heads back toward his home. And as he's still a long way off, the father sees his son in the distance. The father runs to his son. The son tries to make his speech. The father won't even hear it. No, my son was dead. Now he's alive. He puts a cloak on him, he puts a ring on his finger, kills a fatted calf, has a party. Where in that story, well, let me just back up. Where in that story did the son ever ask for forgiveness? He never did. In fact, he assumed the opposite. He assumed that, that there was no possibility, right? That's why he came back with, a, with a, 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 a pitch for being a servant in his father's household. So where did the son ask for forgiveness? Never. Where, uh, here's a further question, maybe more to the point. Where in that story did the father forgive? And I'm going to say, the question doesn't even fit. There was never, in the father's heart, there was never anything to forgive. And by the way, uh, okay, so the, the father, um, the, there's never a place where forgiveness happened because there wasn't an angst, an ought, a, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, whatever it is before forgiveness. The father never had an offense against the son, ever, ever. And of course, Jesus tells that story. We call it the story of the prodigal son, but we might just as well call it the parable of the faithful father because Jesus tells that story to illustrate what God is like, unconditional forgiveness. Um, think about, you may be familiar with the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, right? These religious people, it's really a horrific scene if you think about it, but these religious people bring this woman in front of Jesus and they say that she has been caught in the act of adultery. And of course, that's the story. Um, and and, and they, they say we should stone her because the law says we should, we should stone her uh, for this sin. And this is a story where Jesus kneels down and he writes, he starts writing in the, in the dust, and we don't know what he wrote. Um, but Jesus looks up at him and he says, uh, whoever among you is without sin, you, you cast the first stone. <laughs> That's a great line. Uh, and, of course, they all drop their rocks and walk away. And Jesus looks at the woman and says, go and sin no more. Um, think about the story of the paralyzed man who had these friends with all kinds of zeal and guts, I guess, and they tear a hole in the roof of the house where Jesus is inside teaching, and they let the man down on a mat in front of Jesus. He's paralyzed. Jesus looks at the guy, and what does he say? First thing he says, your sins are forgiven. No, no repentance, no request, no no, I don't know, there's no nothing. The guy just showed up paralyzed in front of Jesus and Jesus just announces the freely given, unconditional forgiveness of God. You know, we, I mean, this could go on. Jesus believes that God's forgiveness is unconditional. 
He teaches it. He describes God uh, as a God who is kind to both the ungrateful and to the evil. He describes God as one who sends, causes the sun to rise and the rain. He sends the rain for both the evil and the good. Again and again and again, Jesus models, teaches, and describes God as generously, generatively gracious, right? Um, furthermore, I would just say on this point, even on a purely philosophical level, leaving Jesus and the Apostle Paul out of it for a moment, um, Forgiveness is only forgiveness when it's offered without condition. <laughs> when forgiveness is offered with condition, it's not really forgiveness. It's like a trade. It's a bargain. And that's different from forgiveness. So all that said, yes, I believe that God's forgiveness is unconditional. And so do you, truth be told. And so does Jesus. So in light of all that, how do we understand a statement like this that makes it sound so painfully conditional? And I just want to offer a suggestion for how we read this. And it would be something like this, that a human heart that will not open to forgive others will also not open to fully receive the forgiveness of God. It's as if forgiveness lives within a chamber of your heart. And if that chamber is closed, it's closed to both others and to your heavenly father. But if it's open, if that chamber in your heart is open, then it's open to both the receiving of God's grace and of the giving out of God's grace. You can think of it like that. Think of it like a flow, like a flowing stream of grace. And if you choose to like build up a dam, you know, and, um, and stop that flow of grace toward others, then that same dam will prevent you from fully receiving the divine flow of grace. In other words, it's not that God's forgiveness is unavailable. It is rather that we will not experience the full richness of God's grace if we remain closed off and stingy when it comes to offering forgiveness to others. And so, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It is a uh, massive, revolutionary, beautiful vision. And we get to announce it in alignment with Jesus every time we pray this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let me pray for you. Father, uh, I just pray that right now everyone who's a part of this live stream community right now, that we would experience a richness of your grace. I want to say, Father, on, on, a, on one level, I pray, God, that those of us who may be burdened right now by guilt, who might even feel unforgivable, I pray that my friends, my brothers and sisters would know 
by experience right now. Your unconditional grace. That where sin abounds, grace superabounds, abounds all the more. So, Father, I pray that we would know your embrace. We would know your forgiveness, your restoration, and that we would know it in our bones. And with that, Father, I pray that you would enable us to be conduits of this kind of grace, this kind of forgiveness, this kind of transformational liberating forgiveness. So, Father, I pray that where my words leave off trying to describe that difference, I pray that that you, by your Spirit, would just do it on the inside of us. Cause us to be agents of healing. Cause us to be agents of the revolution so that really and truly, really and truly, we could be like, like vessels of freedom, vessels of liberation in our world. That there would be a residue of freedom left from where we walk, from where we tread. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Father, for doing all this and so much more by your Spirit at work within us. We need you. We love you. In Jesus' name. We're going to sing a closing song and be dismissed.